0: Hello, my name is Joanna Burke, and I'm really thrilled that you could come for the final of my six part series on evil women. And these, the whole series can be watched either on the Gresham website or on YouTube. But today, I'm going to be speaking about Myra Hindley on the Moors. Friday, 15th of October 1965, Settleworth Moor near Oldham in Lancaster, England. Now, on Boxing Day the previous year, Leslie Ann Downey disappeared from a fairground in the Ancotts area of Manchester. Now, in this photograph, her grieving mother, Anne West, formerly Downey, is pictured on the moors, a team of police and volunteers spread out behind her, searching the land for her daughter's corpse. In her memoir, entitled For the Love, of Leslie, 1989, Anne West described how she waited, trembling with an agony of loneliness. I was a mother alone, supporting a weight of misery that only a mother can know. The day after this photograph was taken, 16th of October, the body of Leslie Anne was found buried in a shallow grave. The melancholic mother, became a woman consumed by hatred, wanting only to be able to slowly torture to death that subhuman creature, Myra Hindley. How could any mother who has lost a child to a cold-blooded killer have any other view on this issue, she asked. For her, justice is retributive, ruthless. The carceral confinement of Hindley, which was to last her entire life, that is 36 years in prison, was not enough. Now this is my final lecture in the series on evil women. I began this talk with Anne West's grief because it exudes a moral authority over the way we respond to people who commit acts of extraordinary cruelty. If in my earlier lectures, I could be accused of disregarding the suffering of the victims of evil women, including the kind of simpering domesticity of Snow White and the misogynistic cockiness of Randall McMurphy, this cynicism has no place in this lecture. Ten-year-old Leslie Ann Downey. 12-year-old John Kilbride, 12-year-old Keith Bennett, 16-year-old Pauline Reed, and 17-year-old Edward Evans suffered irreparable harms, as did their families, loved ones, and communities. This is why since 1966, Hindley's name almost always appears in close proximity to words such as evil, monstrous, she-devil, Satan, the devil's daughter. She is a SS girl living amongst decent human beings, the most hated women in Britain and the personification of evil. Lord Stein maintained that, in terms of comparative wickedness, Hindley was in an exceptional category. He claimed that, even in the sordid history of crimes against children, her actions were uniquely evil. Hindley's name is so blackened by her wickedness that parents think twice about calling their daughters, Myra. However, As I have attempted to argue in all of these lectures, there are good reasons why we should stare long and unflinchingly at people who commit acts of atrocity. Imputations of evil not only tell us about the diversity or the diverse and shifting meanings of evil and of people who harm others, They also, I want to suggest, tell us about ways of imagining better worlds. Before I illustrate what I mean by this through an exploration of Myri Hindley, I want to return to a question that I asked in the first lecture of this series. Why should we be interested in evil? It has been my contention that contemporary historians need to engage in questions of evil. Now, of course, there is a vast literature on the nature of evil in earlier periods of history when it had a central place within local cosmologies, mythologies, and theologies. But, you know, evil never disappeared. Today, moral evils, that is, major harms that humans inflict on others are post-metaphysical. They are worldly, not otherworldly, material, not transcendental. This is why narratives about about evil must intrigue modern historians and other social scientists. As sociologist Jeffrey Alexander put it, the social sciences have not given evil its due. Social evil has not been sufficiently respected. It has been deprived of the intellectual attention it deserves. Evil is a powerful social force. It is worth exploring the function of evil in the modern world, even if it turns out that the concept is used primarily to conceal the absence of any explanation for atrocious deeds. Tabloid journalists, right-wing politicians, true crime authors might latch on to narratives of evil to obfuscate politics. Philosophers like Slavoj Zizek might argue that evil is used as a moralizing term that diminishes the possibilities for carrying out effective political critique. But I want to argue that productive as well as politically astute uses can be made of the concept evil. What can the evil Myra Hindley contribute to these debates? Between 1963 and 1965, Hindley, a typist in a local chemistry, fact- chemical factory, and Ian Bradley, a clerk in the same factory, tortured, sexually assaulted, and killed at least five young people aged between 10 and 17 in the Manchester area. John Kilbride, Edward Evans Leslie Ann Downey Pauline Reed Keith Bennett they were tried at the chester Assize in april 1966 initially hinley was convicted of the murder of edwards and downey and of harboring brady after he murdered kilbride there was a tape recording an uncommon technology by the way within ordinary households at that time households at that time so particularly shocking, proving that Hindley had not only been present, but also participatory. When Leslie Ann Dowie was tortured, sexually assaulted and strangled. 1987, Hindley confessed to a further two murders, those of Reed and Bennett. Now at the time of these five murders, Hindley had been between the ages of 21 and 23 years. Hinley was given a life sentence, which in the words of the presiding judge meant a very long time. Only a few months previously, the murder abolition of the death penalty act had been passed. Before 1965, in other words, murder warranted a mandatory death penalty Henceforth this would be replaced with a mandatory sentence of life imprisonment which should only be changed at the discretion of the Home Secretary. Over the decades that Hindley spent in prison she appealed repeatedly against the length of time she was serving. Her indelible branding with the evil label rendered patrol, parole unthinkable for home secretaries with a keen eye on public opinion. Crucially, 1990, Home Secretary David uh, Weddington ruled that life meant whole life, a fact that Hindley was not informed of for another four years. This political decision was echoed by Home Secretaries, Michael Howard, conservative and vocal adherent of the idea that prison works, and Jack Straw, labor, who staked his political fortunes under the banner of law and order. 1997, after Hindley had spent more than 30 years in prison, a Mori poll revealed that 83% of the population were opposed to her release and three quarters would not respect the Home Secretary if he decided to grant parole. Unable to make any progress through the UK justice system, Hindley turned to the European Court of Human Rights which had rejected whole life sentences as in fact had most European jurisdictions at the time. Not surprisingly, this further infuriated tabloid journalists and right-wing commentators who accused the European court of intrusion, interference, meddling in British justice. Hindley's sentence was to become the harshest one imposed on a female criminal in British history, contrary to the tendency for women to be treated more leniently in criminal justice systems. In jurisdictions allowing for the death penalty, female serial killers are over 60% less likely to be sentenced to execution than their male counterparts. Even some of the most notorious female murderers, such as Caroline Fugate, serial killer, the inspiration for the film, Natural Born Killers. Jeanie Donald, child killer. Carla Homolka, where, where in, as in some of um, Hindley's murderers, sexual sadism preceded the murder of young girls and women. Even they were released from prison early. The relatively light sentences or early paroles of female murderers is due to the belief that, for example, women are more likely to be re- rehabilitated, they are less likely to offend, they are too sensitive to cope with prison life, they are more likely to have been emotionally coerced into their deviant behaviors by domineering male partners, and that they needed the benevolent protection. But in the cases of criminals like Hindley, her violation of gender stereotypes was perceived to be so great that the perverse effect of chivalry was invoked. She was to be punished for transgressing feminine norms. Now, Hindley's lengthy punishment reflected the view that her actions were uniquely evil because she was a woman. Explanations for why male criminals sexually assaulted victims before they killed them are regarded in a less problematic light than for their female counterparts. Male sexuality is assumed to have this kind of aggressive streak, whether because of evolutionary um, adaptation or socialization, it is the excess, the excess of male sexual aggressiveness that rendered such actions sadistic, not its underlying existence. Crucially, in Psychopathia sexualis, Richard von Krapp Ebbing, the very, very famous forensic psychiatrist who was frequently cited in reports on Hindley's crimes argued that sadism, was an extension of normal male sexuality. As he put it, sadism is nothing more than an excessive and monstrous pathological intensification of a phenomena which accompanied the psychical vita sexualis, particularly in males. Kraft-Ebbing drew attention to the fact, his fact, (laughs) that in normal sexual intercourse, Very excitable individuals at the moment of most intense lust often bite and scratch their partners. Love, he said, is similar to anger. Both were active emotions that seek their object, try to possess themselves of it and naturally exhaust themselves in the physical effect on it. Both throw the psychomotor sphere into the most intense excitement and thus, by means of this excitation, reach their normal expression. In sadistical sexual acts, this normal heteromasculine quadrant of passion overheated, exploded, causing, as he put it, real injury, wound or death. In contrast, female sexuality, he said, was passive. It was masochistic. As Kraft Ebbing explained, in the intercourse of the sexes, the active or aggressive role belongs to man. Woman remains passive, defensive. Female sadists, very rare, but he contended they were therefore truly monstrous. Now, it's really important, I think, to dispel this myth. After all, women are a minority, but not a minor one, amongst sexual offenders and murderers. A US survey conducted between between 2008 and 2013 found that a majority of men reporting sexual abuse named Female perpetrators. Nearly 80% of men who had been made to penetrate named a female perpetrator, and just and up to just under 60% reported that violence had been used. Women are also not actually rare in serial or multiple murders either. One fifth of all serial killers identified between 1800 and 1995 were female. Of these, around one third acted alongside a male or alongside a partner, I should say. This is why I think we must question Lord Stein's view that Hindley's crimes were uniquely evil. Stein maintained that without the active participation of Hindley, The five children would probably still be alive today. The pitiless and depraved ordeal of the victims and the torment of their families place these crimes in terms of comparative wickedness in an exceptional category. If I be right, as I have held it to be, that lifelong incarceration for the purposes of punishment is competent when the crime of crimes are sufficiently heinous, it is difficult to argue that in this case that this case is not in that category, but were Hindley's crimes really unique, David Gurnham points out that the phrase "uniquely evil implies an exceptionally high degree of malice and wickedness on the part of the criminal herself. However, in what sense can Hindley or her crimes? be described in these terms. He notes that even a summary ex- examination of other whole lifers reveals that the evilness of Hindley's crime is not in fact unique. There are many examples of gross, shocking cruelty amongst those serving life sentences for murder against whom Hindley looks decidedly ordinary. Hindley understood this as she pleaded with the Home Secretary. To have been kept in prison for more than 15 years is unreasonable. To keep me in prison indefinitely is inhuman. To bribe me of hope, as I have been, is inhuman. The whole area of neglect and inhumanity pervading my case stems from what I interpret to be a fear of public opinion. But someday, someone has to have the courage to stand up to the so-called public opinion. Is society going to be compensated for being thwarted of the rope by my perpetual imprisonment? The question of her being paroled rested not on future risk but retribution and political calculation. This was what frustrated Lord Longford, prison reformer and longtime supporter of Hindley. He reported that fellow Lords and reporters and politicians would admit that, I agree with you, my dear chap. Of course, after all these years, she ought to come out. But they would then add, but you can't imagine any home secretary having the guts to let her out. Can you think what would happen to him? Think what the tabloids would do to him. The injustice was exacerbated by the fact that life sentences were in fact never intended to literally mean life, unless there was clear evidence of risk. And no one seriously believed that Hindley would re-offend. Ironically, you know, Hindley could have been presented as evidence that prison works. Home Secretary Howard's favourite mantra. She was a model prisoner, a practicing Catholic, a calming influence on other prisoners. As writer Peter Sanford Stanford observed, Hinley was actually one of the first few success stories of our prison system. She was a woman whom jail had provided an opportunity to make herself a better person. So, during her time in Holloway, Durham, Cookham, Wood, and later High Point and Suffolk, she obtained an open university degree in humanities, became a voracious and intelligent reader, and a keen student of politics. A prison report, 1995, noted that, for many years now, Myra has been ready to accept responsibility for the offence and appears to be genuine in her remorse. Contrary, to tabloid assertions that she never expressed shame or guilt. In fact, she did so frequently. She even admitted that she was, her words, more culpable than Brady, even though he committed the crimes. This was because not only did I procure the victims for him, I knew it was wrong, to put it mildly, that what we were doing was evil and depraved whereas he subscribed to de philosophy that murder was for pleasure. No one who knew her well, including prison chaplain Bert White, doubted that her repentance was sincere. The mounting evidence of Hindley's rehabilitation actually proved counterproductive. It was actually interpreted as further proof that she was manipulative and cunning. Evidence of female agency, including agency for the good, was portrayed as diabolical, devious. When confronted with a photograph of Hindley in her graduation gown, Anne West, mother of Leslie Ann Dowie, um, commented that Hindley is wearing the cloak of Satan, while Paul Reed brother of Pauline Reed, contended that Satan in Saturn is still Satan. Even when Hindley offered a heartfelt apology to West, the confidential letter was published in the Daily Mirror, which accused Hindley of crying crocodile tears. They quoted a top psychiatrist who claimed that Hindley might be trying to change the public view of her as evil. When she died on the 15th of November, 2002, even her corpse was regarded as polluted. 20 undertakers refused to conduct the funeral. In the words of one, it would have made his business impossible if it was revealed to other customers that their loved one was in the same chapel of rest or in the same hearst, as Myra Hindley. On the fence of the crematorium, someone had posted a sign saying, burn in hell. Hindley spent 36 years in prison from the ages of 22. She died before her case could be heard before the European Court of Human Rights. 10 days after her death, the law lords ruled that tariffs for prisoners would no longer be decided by home secretaries. Hindley's demonization was relentless from the time of her trial to her death. There was no need to turn to tabloid newspapers for evidence of this. Suffice to say that her name almost never appears without the adjective evil. But you know, even reputedly highbrow accounts cannot resist monstering Hindley. Pamela Hansford Johnson, a distinguished novelist and social commentator, attended the 1966 trial of Brady and Hindley. The following year, she published her reflections under the philosophical title on iniquity. Three themes appear, criminal physiognomy, Nazism, and the affectless society. So first, now Johnson, she actually seems obsessed with Hindley's appearance. She noted that Hindley was sturdy in build and broad buttocked, and could have served um, a 19th century academy painter as a model for um, Clyde Timmenstra, or worse, one of Fuseli's nightmare women drawn giant size. Her hair was far too massive for the wedge shaped face. In itself, it bears an uneasy suggestion of fetishism. But it is the lines of this porcelained face which is extraordinary. Brows, eyes, mouth are all quite straight and precisely parallel. Her fine nose is straight too, except for a very faint downward turn at the tip, just as the chin turns very faintly upward. "'she will have a nutcracker face one day.' "'She possessed a great strangeness "'and the kind of authority one might expect to find "'in a woman guard of a concentration camp.'" It was a classic statement drawing on Lombroso's 19th century description of criminal women um, as having this sort of unmistakably marked with the stigmata of deviance. Second, Johnson returns time and again to the theme of Nazism and its link to links to pornography. The trial had revealed Brady's and Hindley's attraction to pornography. One of Brady's favorite books was The Justine or The Misfortunes of Virtue by the Maki- Marquis de Sade. Other books in their possession included women in bondage, kiss of the whip, orgies of torture and brutality, and the pleasures of the torture chamber. For Johnson, as well as numerous other commentators, this was proof that the permissive society had fully occupied British culture, providing the soil in which the most pervidious forms of evil could blossom. Crucially, she linked this permissiveness to Nazism. She claimed that the Nazis deliberately flooded Poland with pornography, using it as a means of social castration. Their aim was to make the individual conscious only of the need for personal sensation and encourage withdrawal from any sort of corporate responsibility. This blunting of sensibility was not the way to an earthly paradise, but the way to Auschwitz, Johnson proclaimed. Hmm. Really important. This was a class-based analysis. She argued as well that texts such as those by the forensic psychiatrist Kraft-Ebbing, who invented the term sadist, should not be available in paperback where the lower classes might have access to them, as she put it There are some books that are not fit for all people and some people who are not fit for all books. Finally, Johnson blamed the rise of a affectless society for evil deeds. The swinging 60s had cultivated a milieu of total permissiveness, which was never a healthy thing, she said, for ill-educated but not stupid Young people such as Brady and Hindley. For Johnson, who had been initially exhilarated by the abolition of capital punishment, the sentencing of these two young people lacked catharsis. It was anesthetic. She believed that it would be better if something violent had happened to put an end to violence. Society, she wrote, missed the shadow of the rope. Her account was a powerful attack on the cultural revolution of the 1960s. Now, Johnson's account of the trial is simply one example of many of how seemingly fact-based commentators contributed to the extreme monstering of Hindley. The legacy of such responses, however, continued for decades after the crimes. Indeed, they continue today, more than half a century later. 1997, for example, by this stage, Hindley, remember, had been incarcerated for 31 years, longer than any other female prisoner, let alone one who was considered by everyone to be of no risk of future offending. Her monstering, however, was exacerbated by an exhibition at the sensation show at the Royal Academy in London. Artist Marcus Harvey's Myra had been painted two years earlier, and inside it was monumental, it was 396 by 320 centimetres, it was huge, massive. It reproduced the infamous mugshot photograph of Myra Hindley, but using a plaster cast of a child's hand. So the scandal I think was in the way it juxtaposed evil and innocence. It's black and white shadows heightened the darkness of deviant femininity. It was a disturbing analogy of modern attitudes to childhood. It was literally an icon. The backlash was immediate. Academicians resigned. Two men attacked the painting and Mama, that is, Mothers Against Murder and Aggression, protested outside the gallery, along with Winnie Johnson, mother of Keith Bennett. The Sun newspaper asked, why not simply hang, hang a bucket of sewer water in the gallery? It would smell a whole lot sweeter than this monstrosity. Their editorial declared that Myra Hindley is to be hung in the Royal Academy. Sadly, it is only a painting of her. By coincidence, only a week prior to the exhibition, Diana, Princess of Wales, had died in a car accident. The press barraged their readers with photographs of the princess, including images of her infamous Uh, panorama interview, the stills from the interview and Harvey's painting um, are uncannily similar. The good mother juxtaposed to her most evil counterpart. Responses to Myra Hindley echo many of the themes that have appeared throughout these lectures on evil women. Much of the literature on evil women, as we've heard before, uses two tropes. Evil women are passive followers of violent male agency, or they are misguided dupes to the soft same patriarchal ideologies that victimize them. In other words, they either lack agency altogether and are therefore victims themselves, or their agency is radically constrained by their acceptance of harmful gender norms, Um, love at all costs, for example. The first of these tropes appeared during Hindley's trial when the judge maintained that Ian Brady was the truly wicked one, with Hindley as a hanger-on. He believed that Brady was wicked beyond belief without hope of redemption short of a miracle, but added that he did not think that this was necessarily true of Hindley once she is removed from his influence. There is in fact abundant evidence that Hindley's behavior and demeanor changed dramatically after meeting Brady. As Johnson noted, she lived a normal teenage life, dances, cinema, chasing the boys. She was a good and patient babysitter. You could always trust her toddlers to her and go out to bingo with a quiet mind. It was a comment echoed by William Mars Jones, who assisted the Attorney General Frederick um, Jones in developing the case for the prosecution. He also observed that in her early nut life Hindley had been a normal happy girl, bit of a tomboy who got on well with friends and relatives. It was not until Brady came into her life that she suddenly began to become withdrawn and secretive and changed her whole attitude towards life. Hitherto, she had wanted to marry and have a family. But at this point, she adopted Brady's ideas, including trial marriage and the view that procreation was unworthy and unnecessary. After meeting the Nazi-obsessed Brady, Hinley began wearing clothes that she considered to be Germanic. She abandoned her Roman Catholic face, admitting that Brady was God. It was as if there was a part of me that didn't belong to me, that hadn't been there before, that wasn't there afterwards. She was also afraid of him, even giving a letter to a female friend, stating that if she disappeared, Brady was responsible. Now, similar to many other evil women in the series, there was a focus on her sexuality. Her relationship with Brady, who was obsessed with sadism, was widely assumed to have perverted Hindley. Even after incas- incarceration in prison for 36 years, the fact that Hindley formed intimate, lesbian bonds with other prisoners, including fellow murderer, Rosemary West and a female prison warden was a powerful argument against any suggestion of rehabilitation. After all, wasn't part of her punishment to be denied human touch and especially deviant sexual intimacy. However, I think there are aspects of Hindley's demonization that have not been prominent in many other discussions about evil women. In particular, I think there's really interesting this absence of talk about psychiatric deviance. As the mother of one victim put it, she did not have the decency to go mad. A high proportion of women accused of violent crimes, much higher than male defendants, enter psychiatric pleas which is one reason why they are more likely to receive psychiatric or non-custodial sentences. This was not the case with Hindley, who always insisted that she was not psychiatrically disturbed. This meant, however, that she was denied access to the paternalistic compassion that is often given to women who act violently, but are deemed in need of therapy rather than punishment. Finally, the extreme, decades long vindictive hatred against Hindley can be explained, I think, in part as a result of an absence of easily identifiable or easily available explanatory frames of meaning. This did not apply to Brady. In the context of circulating frames of meaning of the 1960s, his actions were relatively easy to place. Not only did he have a history of crime, violence, pathological behavior, but he was also diagnosed with schizophrenia and acute paranoia. Now, in contrast, Hindley was a mystery. She was the typical stranger danger except the stranger was a young female typist well-known in the local community. When Hindley was tried, the media-inspired panic over women's involvement in pedophilia had not exploded into popular consciousness. And even if it had, the fact that at least one victim was a 17-year-old young man would have confused matters. In Claire um, Wardle's analysis of child murder between 1930 and 2000, she observed that the language of evil individuals was a common one in pre-1990s reportage of horrific crimes. From the 1990s, however, evil was jettisoned for an emphasis on societal decline with the offenders defined as serial predatory paedophiles. Now, although I agree with most of her argument, I think it's important not to exaggerate her point. As we have seen in On Iniquity, Johnson did point an accusatory finger at the rise of a affectless society. However, the language of pedophilic or even sadistic pathology as an identity that could explain these violent acts was lacking in the 1960s. Instead, people turned to a secularized language of evil, exacerbated, admittedly, by sadistic pornography, but not necessarily a sadistical or persona. It was this void in commonly circulating explanations, Hindley was neither mad nor obviously bad, that made Hindley more frightening. It encouraged commentators to go to that catch-all for what is outside normal human understanding, evil. Evil provided a language that was seemingly at odds with with secular conceptions of wrongdoing, but neatly enabled commentators to give meaning to atrocious behaviors without providing any clear explanation. As such, it was a very useful concept since it allowed people to insist on retribution, but setting the person who had offended so monstrously outside, against, I should say, societal norms, enabling them to be set outside the human. In the words of sociologist Jeffrey Alexander, evil defines and reifies the good. And this is why I believe it is good to stare long, hard and unflinchingly at evil. The ascription of evil risks both dehumanizing the actions of real people in the world and paradoxically bestowing on them an atrocious godlike power. As I have attempted to suggest in all of these lectures, evil is constructed through discourses but cannot be reduced to it. It is about political, it is about moral confrontations between all two fleshly protagonists. Those fictional Evil women, such as the Wicked Witch of Snow White and Nurse Ratchet in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, allow us to contemplate from a safe distance, the nature and meaning of stories about good and evil. Some of the women I've looked at in these lectures have harmed others in grievous ways. In the case of Eve, all of humanities was exiled from the Garden of Eden. Others have committed acts of extreme, extraordinary cruelty the slaughter of babies, Amelia Dyer. Steering young men into harm's way, Matahara. Torturing children, young people, Hindley. I have suggested that in some cases, these women have been responding to unbearable oppressions imposed by their own societies, religious dicta, lack of rights over their own bodies and property, and a universe of discriminatory practices. But they all expressed agency, albeit within those constraints. Throughout though, I have argued that the actions of people who commit deeds horrible to contemplate cannot be understood through discourses drawn from metaphysics, possession by by demons, or rationality, the autonomous self-sufficient subject but only in terms of embodied selves with complex emotional lives, including feelings of rage, humiliation, fear, and pride. And those of us who loudly proclaim that we are not like them are inevitably drawn into their worlds through acts of imagination. They may inspire revulsion, fear, or rage. These responses are an indication of the moral value that we place on the lives of those people who have been harmed. The homicidal hatred of Anne West, mother of 10-year-old Leslie Anne Dowry, towards Myra Hindley, bears witness to her love and pain. But should we accord grief, a moral authority that overrides all else. It is possible that even people responsible for such wrongs can come to accept the moral value of their victims. Those of us who look into the faces of evil women narrow the gap between them, evil, and us, good, in that moment fleeting, perhaps inadequate, Always, we can imagine a world to avoid reifying evil as something outside the human. And this, I believe, would be a way at least of gesturing towards a form of justice. Thank you very much for um, listening to these six lectures. And I hope that you will be able to join me with my next sex series of uh, six, which are on the history of sexuality. But for now, take care and be good.